You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Welcome to tonight's conversation with Claire Louise Bennett. My name is Ose Lappegolan and I work with a program here at the House of Literature. For those of you who have yet to read Bennett's last novel, check out 19, or Kasse 19 in Björn Alex Hermans' Norwegian translation, I think the critic in one of Norway's largest newspapers, Dagbladet, put it aptly when she gave the novel five stars and called it the strangest book I've ever read. <laughs> so I think it's safe to say that we're dealing with a unique literary voice. In Checkout 19, Bennett puts word to the magic and the thrill of reading and the companionship of great books. She shows us the power of imagination and the power of literature while simultaneously pushing the boundaries of what literature can be. And this makes it all sound very serious and grand, but she's also very, very funny. Uh, and the language is playful and innovative. Claire Louise Bennett has written short stories, essays, and two novels. Her debut, Palm, came out in 2013 to great critical acclaim. And Check Out 19 followed last year, again to rave reviews. And we're so happy to have Bennett here tonight to bring us into this strange universe of our books. And we've asked Amalie Kastlin Lerstang to talk with Bennett tonight. She's the author of both prose and poetry, most recently the poetry collection Vosch, about her hometown, and as editor of the poetry anthology En eller to eller hundrevis av søstre, One or two or hundreds of sisters. So please give them both a warm welcome. Thank you, Osil, for the introduction. I'll put the book here. And welcome, Claire Louise, to Oslo. I'm uh, extremely happy that we could have this conversation live mm-hmm. and too. not on Zoom or Teams or anything. And also that the audience can actually be present here today. So that's really nice. So we're going to talk today about your book, um, Check, Check Out 19, Kasse uh, 19 in Norwegian. Mm-hmm. And um, the novel centers around uh, situations from when the narrator grew up until she becomes a young adult. And uh, books are always uh, involved in these situations somehow. Mm. Uh, But in preparation for our conversation, I felt that every time I try to sort of make a kind of summary of the book to maybe those in the audience who haven't read it yet, it feels as I'm working in the opposite direction of what your book is trying to do in a way. Uh, and maybe that is why we get those uh, quotes, as Osil said. And also on the Norwegian uh, blurb, there's a um, quote from uh, Roddy Doyle, who says that it's a beautiful novel, and I don't know why, and that makes it even uh, better. <laughs> and I think that's uh, something that I see in the, um, in the critique of your work, that people are kind of afraid to sort of... Uh, nail it uh, too tightly. Um, So I was wondering if you maybe could start to say something about how this book came into being after you wrote Pond, who was an international success. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, first of all, I would like to thank Osil uh, for inviting me here um, to the Literature House. Uh, I've been to Oslo before, but I've never been here before. 
And I've, I've just so enjoyed it. It's been so lovely and relaxing and um, just the welcome was so lovely, really lovely, really. So that's been so nice. Um, and it's great to, to be here. I just said to uh, Amelie before we came on, I said, who are all these people? I always find it so funny when I go somewhere else and you, you see you think, oh my God, <laughs> so strange. But lovely, I'm so glad. I always say to my friend Mark, like, I bet there'll be five people there and three of them will be volunteers. <laughs> Nothing wrong with volunteers, but I don't think they take much notice of me half the time anyway. Um, so to talk about the, the book, well, it was a few years um, between Pond and, and this one. Um, and there was a lot of difficulty during those five or six years, I suppose. It was about five years, maybe. Um, it was for many reasons, really. I mean, a second book, everyone tells you that second books are difficult. Um, and I felt that the uh, the reading landscape had, had changed an awful lot. Um, in the meantime, a lot of, um, I suppose, activism and discourse had sort of come about in terms of uh, female experience. And um, so it was very hard to sort of know how to locate myself in amongst all of that and if I wanted to and everything became quite loaded I think um and it just wasn't a very good sort of space for me to 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 work in thinking about those things uh, too much or being too conscious of them so um yeah I guess I guess funnily enough then it was uh, when Covid happened and everything started to you know quiet and down and there was restrictions, obviously, and lives became uh, much more um, uh, restricted and repetitive, uh, which was great. As a writer, you, you kind of thrive on that a little bit, I think. Well, I mean, I'm ready now for a bit, a bit of range, but, <laughs> um, but certainly in terms of being able to really be clear about your own thoughts, it's it's for me anyway it's important to have just a lot of um time where the noise is turned down on the rest of the of the world a bit really um and i there were there were pieces that i had had for a long time um that i knew i wanted to bring together and i tried doing that in london maybe a couple of years before i had the piece about the teacher the piece about the Russian man, the piece about the room with a view, a room with a view. And I knew I wanted to have them in proximity, but I didn't, I couldn't quite work out how to do it. It was strange to me. It was a bit frustrating because I knew that I had a sense that they belonged somehow together. But I just really couldn't work it out. And I thought, was it to do with image? Is it to do with, you know, you're trying to kind of find ways and but then for whatever reason during that period of time, I was able to unlock those connections and, and get them working. And that was, really, that was really exciting. How do you do that? How do you work with form? How do you get them to connect? I don't know. It's, it is a bit of a magical thing in a way. It, take, it just means you have to spend a lot of time with the material, you know, and you have to like... There's a certain sort of, I mean, there's, there's a period where there's this just labor and aggravation and frustration. And you feel, you can feel really just bad. And you, and you might write a lot of stuff that's just really bad. 
And you just think, oh, no, I, I don't know. I can't, I don't know how to write a book. <laughs> and it's really easy for me to, to think that because I don't really write books in a, I don't really write very normal kind of books in the sense of, you know, narrative structure and stuff like that. So it's really easy for me to have very negative thoughts about what I'm doing and think that I just, I just don't know what I'm doing. I just think, well, you just don't actually understand what a book is. So <laughs> you're just being like, this, this is no good, really. <laughs> and then, um, so it's really hard to sort of over, you know, overcome all of that as well. And then with time, I guess, like I, I went to, of course, I went to the Munch Museum today and I was looking at more at the surrealist um, exhibition that is on there at the moment. I was a bit annoyed, actually, that there were so few female surrealist artists included. There are so many great ones. But anyway, they're not there so much. But the thing is, it's, it is that thing that I, it fascinates me. It's just those, just those connections and, and dream logic and uh, motifs that reoccur. And we don't even intend for them to happen, you know. And you start spotting kind of coincidences if you've been working with material over a long, long time. And you have material from a long, long time ago you begin to see things that resurface. And that's really interesting. And that becomes really, in a way, like the connective tissue. That's the structure. It's, are those echoes and those motifs? And you realise then, oh, yeah, OK, that's how, that's how I can put these things together. Yeah. You know? Because that's, although it's not a, like a classical narrative there, maybe, um, it still feels coherent to me, the book. Like, the thing... Um, Phrases are being repeated maybe later in the book as well. Is that yes. how you... Yeah, I, it was funny. I thought it was like when I, not long after I finished it and I read back through it again, I was like, oh, that's, that's kind of like pretty a conventional novel. I didn't, that's weird. <laughs> and I said it to my, my, my friend's mum. And she hooted with laughter, and she said, "Clearly, we no, it's weird. <laughs> it's not. It's not like a normal novel." I was like, "I was like, oh, okay." <laughs> but no, if you think about it, it really is because of the chronology and stuff. She's like, "No, don't forget. Don't worry about it, darling. It's not a normal novel." I was like, "Okay." <laughs> um, but yeah, that's. But it is important, obviously, for it to feel cohesive. Like you don't want it to be a mess. I don't like mess. That would annoy me. And I've written, you know, things that have been a bit. I've just not been convinced that I've, I've worked on a deep enough level with it. Like, I, I reach a point where I do feel like a mechanic, and I go in and I'm sort of tinkering on such a kind of like, like a, I don't know, like a micro level. Like, really finding that, those like, yeah, like that connective tissue. And I, I, love, I love that. But, and it takes, it takes a lot of time and going back through, you know, working back through. And I love it. I really love that, actually. It feels quite sculptural or something. Yeah, yeah. Because you told me on the way down here that you didn't like um, the term "stream of consciousness." Has that to do with that? Maybe. Like... Do you like it? Do you use it much? Uh, <laughs> in, in lack of better words, maybe. Well, that's exactly <laughs> it, isn't it? I think it gets used because there are a kind of an absence of, of words, maybe, to describe work that isn't uh, so sort of orthodox. And as, as I was saying just now, you know, it, it, it's applied to. So many different books. But then if you looked at all those books, they have nothing actually in common. <laughs> They're completely different. So you're wondering what it is that they de it denotes. It just seems to really denote that this is not a, a regular book. And 
I mean, I was reading something from the TLS uh, that was from the 1950s. I think a reviewer had said, oh, I'm so sick of this phase, you know, stream of consciousness. It's been done to death. That was in, like, 1952. <laughs> you know what I mean? We're, like, 70 years later, we're still kind of, like, hammering it out. And I just don't know what it means. And I think, I think I suppose I'm, I get a bit sensitive about it because when it's said, I always think, what they really mean is that I've just gone, Bleh. you know? <laughs> And spilt a load of crap all over the page. That's really what people mean. <laughs> Stream of consciousness. It's like whatever crap is coming, you know, into my head. And that annoys me because it's just like, it's really not like that at all. <laughs> But do you, do you experience that it's often used about your work? Uh, yeah. I, I, it seems to have a slightly negative connotation sometimes, I think. And... And I think what it is is about, I, I don't find it particularly, particularly with this book, because with this book, there are many, many uh, timescales that work at the same time. Like stream of consciousness is, okay, so you could say it's like the mind in action or something. And it's just, yeah, all the impressions and everything that's going on and things. But there's such a collapse of, of, ti of time in this. Not a collapse even, but a sim simultaneity of time. That in a sense, that doesn't really make, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, to think of it in, in that way. Um, and I would point to a, a, a writer like, well, someone like Jean Rhys or Marguerite Duras um, or Annie Arnaud even, whose style is very, very different from mine, but in their treatment of time. And Deborah Levy, actually, she's another one, a more contemporary writer who, who is able to like, feel within the present, the past in it. Um, and I haven't expressed that very well, but it's kind of tricky. But yeah. there's different temporal registers, I suppose. Yeah, can, can you elaborate a bit on that? Because I think time is, an, is important in this book, I think. Uh, so navi navigating in time in this book. like um, uh, It's like uh, when she looks back on certain uh, events or... Um, it's like book is a way to sort of navigate in time and in space, in a way, I feel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, and I guess there, there's a, a very big section in the, in the book that I uh, hadn't really um, anticipated it taking up so much time and space in the book <laughs> about what, what she has read and what, what she hasn't read. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then I just found that such a, an interesting thing to sort of continue with and to stay with. So even though actually originally, well, I thought of it, I thought it was only going to be maybe a few sentences. I kind of liked it as a maybe a device of some sort, and I like and I like the the rhythm of it. And as there was, I had, they had a particular rhythmic quality to it, so I kind of I stayed with it. And um, and it was interesting to think of how how a book that she hadn't hasn't read uh, at a particular time. And she subsequently reads, changes the changes how she sees a past event. Yeah, and yeah, because I mean, and and that idea, I suppose, of the past not being, not being fixed. And I suppose that that was a a key thing for me that I had reached a point in in my life, uh, as I was getting older, when my life no longer seemed all of a piece. No, for a long time it just sort of does, and even this your, your youthful stuff seems like it's. There's a continuum, but then there comes a point when it it really doesn't anymore. It's quite strange, quite a strange 
kind of moment, that, really. And it's sort of melancholy, obviously, because there's a kind of a weird grief there in a strange way. But it does enable you to sort of look at things with uh, a great deal of compassion, I think. Because um, it can't hurt you anymore, in a way, I don't mm. think. Um, or you don't feel a product of it, then maybe is a better way of putting it. Uh, you have a certain freedom from it. Mm. Um, anyway, that's maybe a bit of a different subject, I don't know. No, but that's interesting because um, um, also like thinking back what she's what she'd read and what she hadn't read at the time. Um, but like you said earlier as well, there's pieces that was written or sequences in the text that was actually written a long time ago. And there's um, uh, there's a sequence where um, the narrator is. Um, a young adult, and she's on the top of a hill looking o down on a valley. Mm -hmm. And without maybe giving away too much, I don't know, uh, you can decide that, but uh, it's um, she discovers something awful. Mm -hmm. And then the text goes on to say that, um, I've tried to write about it many times, but every time I try to write about it, it becomes uh, exaggerated. Mm. And it's like uh, she pushes herself to just, come on, just, Tell what happened. Mm. And then the tone of the text sort of changes in a way. And I was curious to know like more about that because um, it seems like it gets harder and harder to uh, say something uh, true about what really happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting part because some of those um, sections... Um, actually do come were written at completely different times uh and i think some of the shorter sections uh when she's describing being sitting on a on a log that's it isn't it? and the grass is wet and she's wearing some daps or something and they're quite damp and there's a swing behind her and um those those parts some of those parts i i wrote over 20 years ago so i'm quite interested in um using pieces that are that are quite old or that aren't uh, contemporaneous necessarily because they have a different emotional charge because they were written near the time right mm. so they do they do have a different kind of vibe to them really different frequency to them so in writing that piece I didn't think well I'm just going to write up those notes you know what I mean mm. I don't really think of them as notes I was like well no I'm gonna it's like a collage in a way Mm. Um, and so yeah the style is slightly it's interesting that you could pick up on that really because you kind of wonder whether people will but that's something that happens throughout throughout the book because like I yeah there are many versions I might have written about something you know many times over the years and there is that frustration because in a way you want it to have that original impact that you that you experienced when it happened you want to somehow try and recreate that but then that can lead to some really bad writing. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh no, this is so bad. It, yeah, you know? Yeah, so you yeah. think, well, maybe maybe that's not it then. Maybe that's not what needs to happen here. You're not going to make a person kind of go, <gasps> like, <laughs> you know? There has, there's another, there's a more important or interesting or uh, function for this. And it's discovering that in a way as well. And I suppose ultimately it does become about, about memory, really. Mm. You know, but when you when you you said it was written twenty years ago, did you then do you edit it a lot before you 
put it back into the novel? No, or? no, that's no. no, that's what I'm saying. No, you. Yeah. And it's hard because you know you kind of feel like you want to do like, and you just think, well, no, don't do that. You yeah, know, you're either going to take it intact, and there's a reason for doing that. And like I said, it's to do with the energy of it. Mm. You know, which is different because of the, how close in time it was to the to the event itself. Um, so no, I don't, I don't, I don't interfere with it really. Yeah. It's just, uh, yeah, it's so hard not to edit it to death, really. Yeah, isn't yeah. It? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, another one of those um, uh, earlier written stories that uh, end up in this novel is uh, the story about Tarkin. I was actually wondering how it was to, uh, how do I say his last name? Well, I say Superbus. Superbus, But somebody yeah. has said Superbus. Yeah. I was, which is quite nice. <laughs> I didn't want like to say Superbus. It was Superbus. Superbus is good. Okay, so Superbus then. <laughs> And in the in the novel, the narrator starts talking about how she once wrote a story about someone named Tarkin Superbus, and then we just gradually sort of gets the story about Tarkin Superbus. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. suddenly, this is the novel about yeah. uh, Tarkin mm -hmm. Superbus. Mm -hmm. And uh, how did he end up in the novel? Because it's um, it's quite. Uh, a change like uh, Tarkin Superbus is or you can tell a little bit about him maybe I don't know what it was so funny it was so funny it <laughs> happened because I was really enjoying it it was so funny because again it was a thing where I thought oh I'm gonna write about that um and again I thought it was only going to be maybe a, a, a short kind of passage about about this story that I'd written um like a, yeah about 20, I suppose more yeah 20 odd years ago um And I, I didn't, I didn't finish it. It was very short. Um, and I never make up characters. That was the weird thing about it. I don't really. So this was a character in you know, Tarquin Superbus, and but I was really vague about <laughs> really kind of like where he lived and when, and all these sorts of details. Then, and maybe this is one of the reasons why I get kind of scared about the idea of writing a conventional novel because I think I bet I get something wrong. <laughs> and the reviewer would be like, oh, well, she's clearly never been to, you know. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, for God's sake. So <laughs> you don't name anything like in Pond. There's no names or anything like that. So they just have to get the knickers and the twist about something else. Um, But I they, see him as this very flamboyant sort of is. 1800s Yeah, he's guy. like, sometimes he was from the 1800s that I write. And sometimes he was like from more like the Renaissance period and... The way he spoke was all over the place. You know, there was no real, like, continuity, really. <laughs> and if I just fancied the idea of him having some sort of bauble or pastime or affectation, <laughs> I just put it in. And I just didn't really care about anachronisms and stuff. It was, like, loads of fun. <laughs> and um, so I got really into, re you know, writing about this story that I once wrote. And, and, the, and then it was quite um, an interesting experience because... And I guess this is maybe an experience that novel writers have. You know, they talk about characters coming alive. Um, and, he, and he sort of did, in a way. He did go through a really bad phase where I just kept seeing him as Boris Johnson, which was just like, oh, God. <laughs> like, sulking. Like, in a chair, like, looking really like, oh, someone's taken away my beer. That's oh. <laughs> kind of what if. He felt like for a while, but then he changed and he became, and it was so, and I, in, and I enjoyed that because then there was another character, it was the doctor, and he goes through a real transformation as I'm writing it, because he starts off as quite sort of a vague-ish character, he's very ghostly, really, really pale, he's got a really white face, and she, she describes him as such and says maybe he's like 300 years old or 
maybe he's deaf actually because of the way he moves he's so spectral and he just sort of appears and disappears and but then as it goes on he actually becomes more and more real and that is a metaphor you know it's a very obvious metaphor for how then uh, i guess a character be starts to become more and more um real and sus- substantial in your own imagination so then by the end of it actually it's like she has a bit of a crush on him. She's like, oh, he's really, he's got a nice suit on and da da da. He smells nice. He smells of Indian soap or something. So he's gone from this kind of like Nosratu character to being like your man from The Great Beauty, you know, the film, that Italian guy. He's quite nice. <laughs> so it's been this transformation. And that's so fascinating, you know, and I was interested in that. It was interesting. So then instead of going, right, I'm going to go back to the beginning and have him like this from the start. So there is a, a consistency. I'm going, to leave, I'm going to leave it in so that the reader can just actually see how he changes. Mm. And then at the end, when he goes in to say goodnight to the housekeeper, she looks at him and she, she's like me. She's, she's speaking for me because she says, I'd never really noticed how nice his eyes were before. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she says, goodnight, doctor. Or <laughs> 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 something. <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> I just like it. <laughs> I just like how his whole thing is. And I leave him be then and he goes off into the night and <laughs> I say something like, yeah, do doctor, I could have listened to you all night long or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's really playful. I love that chapter, actually. I had a lot of fun with it. I had a lot of fun with Yeah. But to me, <laughs> to me, Tarkin became sort of even more important when we later learned that um, uh, the notebook that she first wrote about him in, um, uh, the notebook with the original story about Tarkin, she finds it uh, shredded to pieces on the floor by her then boyfriend. Yeah. Which is, of course, we know, we, have, we everyone agree that that's a horrible thing to do to someone to shred up their notebook. And it's like, because um, he feels sort of threatened about her writing it's uh, something that he can't can't really understand and can't be part of and mm. therefore he just mm. shreds it to pieces mm. and uh to me it was it became sort of like a revenge in a way like okay you could tore up the book but you couldn't really mm-hmm. you couldn't kill the the idea about mm. Tarkin superbus because mm. here he is alive <laughs> kicking mm-hmm. so um so yeah what's your Thought on that, like well, there's quite there's quite a heavy-handed sort of uh, connection that is made, isn't there, between say that and and there's a mention of like the, the book burning uh, in the same chapter. Mm. So I kind of you know it's a bit heavy-handed, I suppose, but it just you know I just thought of it, and there is a fire uh, in the in the tar- So actually, Tarkin Superfuss he acquires this um, this library, and this was actually this was in the original piece. This is what really what the story was about. So he's a bit fed up with people not taking him seriously. I think he pretty much lives in Venice. For ages it was like, is it Vienna or is it Venice? Mm, not much in it, I guess, but let's settle on one, probably Venice. <laughs> and everyone thinks he's a bit of a buffoon, you know, and he just squanders money and people laugh at him and he thinks, right, I'm going to get a library now. I'm going to get a really cool library, loads of books, and everyone's going to just take me seriously because everyone knows that if you've got books... You know, you're pretty serious, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get me some books. So he does. So he does this, and then the whole thing about the books is, so they don't know. This quite a mysterious uh, procession of carriages kind of come in. Can they come flying in, in these on these carts in crates? And um, it's quite mysterious where they originated from. 
And the, the sense is that it's just this library that has been kind of traveling around for hundreds, maybe, you know, longer years. And they, they, it contains lots of uh, tracts and manifestos and tomb tomes from, from all different kinds of cultures and civilizations. So anyway, he has this installed in this very elaborate kind of almost like a honeycomb sort of room with no, you know, with no windows and stuff. And it gets described in things and it's all very opulent and stuff like that. So anyway, the books get shoved in and like he doesn't really take any notice of them at all. And the doctor comes around uh, and he's in a bit of a funk again. And his doctor is, is the, his only friend, really. He's known him since he was a boy. And the doctor comes around and he says, oh, what's the matter with you? And he says, oh, you know, whatever. But look, I'm, I've got this library. Let's come have it. Let's come and I want to show you my books. I've got these amazing books. The doctor says, oh, right, wonderful. Because, of course, doctor's very erudite and not just for show. <laughs> so he goes into this library and Tarkin watches him. He's drinking a glass of Barolo and he's watching the doctor. And the doctor's kind of flicking through the books. And Tarkin's like, oh, yeah, look, he's having a really good time looking through stuff looking good, looking, and he takes another one and looks through, and he keeps looking through, and then Tarkin's like, what's he doing? Like, he's not really, you know, spending any time on any one of these books. And then the doctor looks at him, and he says, there isn't a single word on any of the pages of your books. They're blank. Completely blank. So there's this whole vast library, and there's nothing, and he's like, oh, yeah, I've been taken for a chump again. Really pissed <laughs> off again, right? <laughs> And then the doctor says, no, 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 this is, this, is, this is very important now, he says, because this library is very, very special. And like I just described, this library has been traveling around and it kind of ends up in different uh, eminent households throughout Europe, mainly, I think. Um, and there's, there's probably, you know, there's a reason. And within this library, okay, they're all blank pages, but actually there is, there is somewhere a sentence printed somewhere it's very kind of Borges you know idea I suppose um but there is this yeah one one sentence somewhere and you and when you find it you have this kind of this experience of understanding and enlightenment so Tarquin's a bit like oh for god's sake that's just way too much hard work like what do you you know what do you mean I have to look so I have to look through all these and he says well that's the challenge you know but if you do find it you just experience this insane awakening kind of thing. So Tarquin starts having a look, doesn't he? He kind of shoves <laughs> up against the bookshelves the next day and he does it. He's like, oh, yeah, I'll get this done by lunchtime, no problem. <laughs> and then he gets kind of fed up and he doesn't find it. And he has a huge tantrum and he just decides to, to burn the whole lot of it. Um, so there's a, a pretty, yeah, a pretty full-on scene where there's a, a huge, huge fire. And then I suppose because I'd created this scene and there was this image of book burning, I, I, couldn't, uh, I couldn't help but, uh, you know, link it to uh, the book burnings in, in Berlin. Um, so I did, I did. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, I mean, that was something I did throughout. Any, if I thought of something, if I thought, if something occurred to me, I pretty much put it in. Like there was nothing really that I, I um, or very few things that I thought, well, you know, does it fit or, you know, is it a distraction? I mean, a couple of very, very small things. I think I wrote quite a long bit about Ingeborg Bachmann and it just was too much. I took that out. <laughs> Which I kind of regret in a way, but anyway. <laughs> she'll, she'll have her a moment. But mostly, I mean, and that was almost like a principle for me throughout the whole thing of, like, put it in. If you, if you, if you think it or if you feel it, just put it in. Don't. Don't censor yourself or 
So that's what I did, yeah. Mm. Maybe you want to um, read a little for us from, from the book. Okay, okay, I will. I'm just trying to think what... Um... Oh, yeah, I might read this bit then. Because for all that, I mean, there is, there is a lot in it to do with, you know, family um, and ch in childhood. And a writer uh, who, I, who I really adore, and I discovered her work about um, 10 years ago, was an Italian writer called Natalia Ginsberg. Um, she's a wonderful writer, or, or was. Um, and she would have been writing, I guess, post-war in Italy. Um, so in a way, that kind of, what would you call it, Italian neo-realist, neo I suppose, um, and would have known a lot of the filmmakers around that time as well who were kind of making, uh, like, The Bicycle Thief and stuff. And I think she would have known some of those guys. Um, so I really love, I really love the strength of her writing and the strength of how she locates it in direct experience and the way she... Um, the way she uses language, the way her relationship towards language uh, developed, and, and from... There's one of her books called Family Sayings or Family Lexicon, which I really, really loved. Because as much as this novel is about books, it's also about spoken language and about how it's shared at, at home when we're children and phrases that you, that you have and that will always connect you uh, to, your, to your family and to a certain time in your life. Um, they're very important to me. Um, I, I loved that, and it, it's still a very much a part of uh, the way I think about language, even in a, a written sense, as much as, you know, thinking of it in a, in a literary, intellectual sort of way. So, I'll read this bit then. I have this idea that Marilyn Monroe stayed in bed when she got her period and bled all over the sheets, and I'm not sure where I derived it from. It's been in my head since I was approximately 10 years old. My grandmother adored old Hollywood stars and had a particular penchant for Vivian Lee and Marilyn Monroe. So it might have been from her I got it. But I can't imagine my grandmother telling me a thing like that. Perhaps she said it to my aunt and I overheard. I wasn't a snoop, but I did have sharp ears. My family relished exchanging grisly tales, though usually I'd only ever catch a snippet, which, severed from the full body of the story became disturbingly visceral and took on a lasting and malignant life all of its own. I shall never forget the heinous image that assaulted my imagination when I overheard, for example, my other grandmother saying to her son, my father, and she'd bitten all the skin off her fingers. Imagine that, eating your own hands. Stupidly, I repeated those words to myself verbatim many times over. My tendency to take every word I heard absolutely literally paradoxically meant I very often got the wrong end of the stick about quite a lot of things on a daily basis. And surely I had got the wrong end of the stick about this conversation. Surely the girl, whoever she was, hadn't really eaten her own hands. It occurred to me that I probably hadn't understood what my grandmother had said correctly, that her words meant something else, something entirely innocuous. However, instead of just brushing them off, it came to me that perhaps if I only repeated the awful phrase enough, the real innocuous meaning that it obviously contained would eventually surface in all of its forgettable ordinariness 
and the gory apparition of the girl greedily gobbling up her own hands and all the blood crawling down her arms and dripping thickly from her elbows would go away at once. That's not what happened. On the contrary, a new terror was released upon me, ironically by the most humdrum word out of them all. After many repetitions, the word and lodged in my throat expanded barbarously I practically choked on it and and she'd bitten all the skin off her fingers so in fact there was another thing she did before chewing off her hands possibly something much worse would my grandmother say the worst thing first probably she would my father's mother was dramatic and liked to make maximum impact when she told you a story whereas my mother's mother recounted scandalous news in a roundabout sort of way pulled back and forth again and again by uncertainty and a preoccupation with peripheral details, apparent shortcomings, oh, come on, spit it out, which often, nonetheless, conspired to plant a strange and robust seed. What exactly had the girl done before she chewed off the skin on her fingers? <laughs> on this occasion, my imagination was uncommonly, uncommonly considerate of my faint-hearted disposition so that instead of conjuring up the absolute worst, it very quickly installed a relatively tame image of the girl tearing out her blonde and lank hair, thus preventing anything truly horrific from emerging that would scare the living daylights out of me. Tearing out her hair seemed to make sense anyway. She'd torn out her hair in great big clumps and she'd bitten all the skin off her fingers. Imagine that, eating your own hands. Yes, that made sense. Clearly, it was the eating of the hands that my grandmother wanted to leave my father with. So, in all likelihood, the prior diabolical action very probably wasn't anything worse than that. And in fact, now that the hand-eating was prefixed by another grim act of self-mutilation, it wasn't nearly as frightening anymore. In fact, it made me laugh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So, um, <laughs> in glimpses, we we see a, a young girl growing up, and I um, there's a scene in the uh, when she's she's at school and she um, starts um, drawing a face in the back of her book, and then she starts scribbling over it, and then suddenly it turns into some words, and she writes a story, maybe mm -hmm. her first story. Um, And that seems kind of important. It's like, um, it, I think um, it says um, in the book, and then the pen was done, spent, happy, and lay there now, smoldering on top of the closed exercise book. Spent, yes, but I knew now what it was capable of. So we sort of see her um, way towards um, writing herself. Um, and there's also a teacher there who discovers her um, story in the back of the book and he asks her to read uh, more and I was thinking um, about how some writers always say that um, they knew from the beginning that they would become a writer or they knew early on that they would um, uh, pursue writing um, but here I find it as more of a, a fragile thing maybe that it's very important to have those um, Almost uh, by coincidence, he finds mm. the text, mm. but to her it means a lot. And could you say something about that? Like, um, her, she doesn't grow up with uh, lots of books. She has a few books, and because she's got few books, they 
also uh, mean a lot. Like they stand out. Um, so how how is uh, how is her way into writing really? Well, I guess an element of it that is quite important uh, is is the class element and the background that she comes from, which is working class. Um, so no, she there isn't a whole lot of books, and there isn't really this idea um, that she she might be a writer when she she grows up. I mean, that's just not something at all that would be um, would occur to her. Um, but you know, based upon the world around her and and the opportunities. Um, or the you know the very narrow set of opportunities that are um, part of her her future, I suppose, as a working class, a young working class um, girl. Um, so th- there's a lot more at stake than just becoming a, you know a writer and getting good at writing and all the rest of it. It's a it's a huge existential shift as much as anything else. Um, and thinking, and that was something else I, I kind of had been thinking about and hadn't really thought about particularly. Um, I live in I live in Ireland, and I'm originally from the from the UK, um, and I was born in a very working class town. And it was uh, at the time it was the fastest growing town in in Europe, and and there were a lot of a lot of jobs, which was kind of irritating because I didn't I didn't <laughs> want a job. <laughs> um, but you know you had to and they were awful really really but and i did a lot of jobs for quite a while you know in warehouses and and things and i'd I'd had a third level education i'd been to university and there's this sort of you know naive idea that if i got a degree it would somehow lead to something but you know it doesn't really it's because you need you need the social networks and so on it's not enough really just to have this this degree like no one cares they don't know who you are uh, so I just went, ended up back in my in my hometown, and it was really as if I hadn't done the degree. Um, I, I, it was the same, except I, you know, owed money. Brilliant. Um, so for various reasons, I was like, well, maybe I'll leave the country. <laughs> um, so I did, you know. So I did. So there was all kinds of factors involved in this thing about you know becoming becoming you know a writer. Um, and yeah, people do, you know, do ask, I suppose, and when did you start writing and, and when did you know and all this kind of thing. And it's, it, it never really, it never really feels, you know, it never feels like, like it, it's like that, really. That's not on the level I experience it on. Um, and when I started, I suppose when I realised that I'd lived in Ireland for about 20 years, I started to kind of think about, you know, why, why I was there and why I'd left England, because I hadn't really thought about it that much. Um, and I suppose more and more people were kind of asking me what what had gone on there, and and I just said, well, actually, I I, I just didn't see that I had much of a future in in England, actually, or the future I had just seemed very very sort of quite bleak and uh, limited. So that was um, why. Well, because like I said, I just you know there was such a kind of a, a focus on you know just getting a job and getting a you know a house in one of those suburbs out near Freshbrook or whatever it was called. And there, you know, and there was all these big, like um, nine screen cinemas being built out in the outskirts of town, and big, I don't know, DIY shops and stuff. And I just thought, I don't, I just don't want to live like that, you know. I'll go crazy. I'll go really, really crazy. 
And it's hard then because you don't, you know, you don't, want, it's, you don't want your parents to think that you're judging them and saying to them the way you've chosen to live your life is kind of rubbish. I'm not saying that. It just, I know, I know what I can't do. You know what I mean? So mm. there was a lot of pain around that, actually. There was quite a bit of pain around, around that. And um, you do feel... And it's something that Annie L. No talks about in her books. I don't know whether... I'm sure she's... I'm very sure she's been translated into Norwegian. She's an amazing French writer. She's about 80 now. And she grew up uh, with... Her parents were... Um, they ran a cafe shop, you know, one of these epicerie cafes in, in Rouen in France. Um, and they were just very, very regular people. And she was, she was smart and she went to college, went to university, she became a teacher. And, and she talks about there's this incredible scene, this beautiful scene. It's so heart-wrenching and I really identified with it. And she talked about when she came back from university and, you know, you have to sit around the table and the neighbours are there and they're talking about, you know, yeah, a new supermarket that's opened up actually, funnily enough, and who does the best uh, jugged uh, hare or rabbit and all this kind of thing. And she's got a head full of Virginia Woolf and, and, she, really, and, she, and she gets irritated because she really she doesn't want to be hanging around sitting listening to this. She wants to be upstairs reading her books, you know, but you've got to, get, you've got to negotiate. You can't be, you know, you've got to do your bit and take part. Um, and you, and but at the same time, because your mind is somewhere else completely and thinking on a, not a different, well, it is a different level, really, I suppose, but it's, it's thinking in a different way. And you become more and more interior, you know, because mm. you're not in an environment where you can just be yourself and, and say what is going on and talk about, I mean, I, I really couldn't. And mm. even, you know, even now, I, you know, my parents don't really know what, they don't, they don't really know I'm here or, you know. I mean, it's different now because I'm older in a way, but when you're younger... But even so, you know, it's a little bit, it, it limits, it limits their sense of you and it limits what you, what you share and all those kinds of things. So, you know, this idea of being a, being a writer, like, I guess there'll always be an element of doubt if, if a huge part of the people in my life don't experience that part of me. You know what I mean? I think it will always. And so Annie Elno, she always talks about this conflict in her and it never gets resolved. And now she's 80 and she still talks about it. And sometimes she even describes herself as a class defector. Like she feels it so strongly. And when she writes, she, she's, not, she's not like me with all this crazy kind of language. She keeps it very, very simple and very, very plain. And I don't know whether that's her way of dealing with this guilt because she says, oh, I want my books uh, to be, a, you know, people from ordinary backgrounds to be able to read my books. And I felt kind of a bit bad for a while. I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> I don't, you know, I, I almost create difficult, you know, what's that about? Am I being passive aggressive or something? <laughs> like, you know, um, but I, I just, I thought, well, no, actually, when I was, you know, I've always really enjoyed, you, know, you can't second guess your reader. You can't say what, what an ordinary, a working class person is an ordinary person because they're not particularly, and it doesn't mean that they can't enjoy language and they can't access, you know, more experimentally put together language mm. so um yeah yeah because I, I wanted to uh, get the time to talk a bit about Anne Quinn mm -hmm. that you write about mm. in your uh, novel I'm not sure if everyone here knows who she is so maybe you could say a little bit about her and mm. especially what you write about how she was perceived by critics uh, that was from a, um, a more upper class background than her uh, herself being mm. a female writer from the working class Right. Can you say something yeah, about I, that? Yeah, absolutely. It's a good time, actually, to mention her. Uh, so, yeah, she, she was another writer. I've only discovered in, in recent years, 
and she was from uh, Brighton in, in England. Um, she was brought up by her mother only. I don't know what her father was up to. He, I think he might have been involved in vaudeville or something, but he was kind of there and gone, mostly gone, I think. Um, I can't remember exactly when she was born, maybe the 30s. Yeah, maybe 30s, 40s. That would be about right. And she's got a really extraordinary way of, of writing, a very unique kind of st style, which feels to me very, very authentic. It's, uh, it's very based on sort of like, I guess, form, texture, um, her focus on things. She's not really looking at, you know, um, in story in the conventional sense. It's quite hard to describe. But actually... The critics, the way they, they pigeonholed her was to lump her in with the writers of the Nouveau Roman from, from Paris at the time, writers like uh, Hélène Rougrie, I suppose, that kind of thing. And they were, yeah, sure, looking at uh, the world in this sort of, um, I guess, post-existentialist way, where you're, they're focusing very much on, you know, the, the objects and qualities of the material world. So they're kind of saying, oh, yeah, she's just, she's imitating I mean, they basically said that. The reviews are really sniffy. Um, but then I was thinking about it, and I just thought, well, I, no, this, this is authentic. And where this is coming from... And they've got a blind spot here. This is, like, because of their class position, right? They're not... They're saying here they're not getting. And the thing is, if you, if you grow up in a working-class environment, there's this really weird thing that happens. On the one hand, there's loads of stuff going on all the time, right? It's a racket. There's noise and stuff, and it's really hard to get your own space and da-da-da. But at the same time, so you've got all this stimulation going on, right? At the same time, it's not stimulating, right? So there's all this stuff, but, but also you're bored. Like, there's nothing really you can connect with. So it's a really strange thing. So you are actually really conscious of things in quite a detached way because you become quite detached in a sense. Otherwise, you'd just be exhausted. Um, so you're viewing it. So it, it's 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 a perspective that actually is quite natural, and it does develop over over time, and and it creates a sensitivity of what you know this term phenomenological. You you develop a phenomenological sensitivity, I think, quite quite naturally. And that was that's the point I make when I discuss her her work, um, and it feels completely it feels completely authentic to me that she would be tuning into the world on, on that level. And it's extraordinary the way she writes. And it doesn't mean... So it's kind of weird because you think, oh, does that mean she's like a realist writer? No, not really. Because, because one of the things about phenomenology is like, it's like trying to come at something without relying on um, received ideas about it and given formulas and, uh, you know, phrases that would be kind of cliches, I suppose. And you really feel that with her, that she's trying to absolutely just come at an experience or a situation. A bit like Sartre did in, in Nausea, I suppose, yeah. I mean, there is a, a tradition there, if you like. But, I mean, every writer has that, don't they? You're not writing kind of like in a vacuum. But do you think that applies to your um, way of writing as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I am conscious. Not when I'm writing, but I am conscious. I mean, I love to read, as, as you can tell from this book. And I love to think about... Um, I suppose different ways of using language, and I suppose that is part of my frustra frustration with the phrase stream of consciousness, because, in fact, there are any number of ways of thinking about a, a writer's relationship with language if they're not just using it as a vehicle 
to tell a story. Do you know what you mean? Mm. Um, it's like Francis Bacon has this quote, said something like, I don't want the, uh, I don't want the story to, to, to shout louder than the pain. You know, it's the same with me. I don't want the story to, I want the words to still be apparent. I want people to feel that there are words on the page mm. and to always rem remember that there, it's like, yeah. And I, and I'm interested in, in writers who, um, who explore that dynamic as well. Um, and there are any number of ways. I just recently started reading the, um, the, the Russian um, philosopher, Mikhail Bakhtin, 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 I suppose. He's not French, Bakhtin. is he? Bakhtin's more. Um, and he talks about, like, the, you know, the dialogic imagination and heteroglossia and all these great phrases. And I think, oh, they're exciting. They're more exciting than the human consciousness. Or they seem to resonate more with me when I think about what I'm doing with language, you know. So there are other ways of, and I think, I think, because we focus, I don't know what it's like here, but in the, in the UK, um, certainly, and to, in Ireland to a certain degree, but there's more of a, uh, a, a tradition there, I suppose, with Joyce and Beckett of play, language play. But in, in, they're still fairly conservative, I find, in the, in the UK, hmm. you know, they get cold feet a bit if you do something a bit. A bit like, ooh, we like it, but ooh, a bit we're like not sure this. if anybody else will. You know what I mean? You're like, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> You're kind of the opposite, I think. <laughs> um, our time is up. I could have listened to you for many hours. Is it really? I know. It's really chatty, actually. <laughs> but, um, but we have to finish. So, Claire Lees, thank you so much for coming here, um, talking to us. Thank yeah. you so much. It's been really lovely. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek.